This episode is provided to you by Clara Labs. Clara Labs is making it easier for you to focus on the things that matter by providing a 24-7 virtual assistant to handle all of your scheduling needs. Here's how it works. All you have to do is CC Clara in your email thread, and Clara will take it from there. Clara is responsive, reliable, and simple to use. For more information, visit www.claralabs.com. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Breather is a network of hundreds of workspaces serving as a complement to the typical office. Ideal for individual work, meeting with clients, or company offsites. Breather offers beautifully designed private office spaces on demand. For more information, visit www.breather.com. David Hyman, I'm the CTO and co-founder of Purple. We're a platform that lets uh, creators and journalists uh, reach their audience directly through text messaging and then charge for it. My primary responsibility is building the product, because it's uh, probably the best description of what I do is it's, it's build things. Uh, it's been doing that for a very long time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's something that I thoroughly enjoy. I think just putting stuff in people's hands and seeing what they do with it and, and creating things that make people's lives better. Um, and so that's kind of the perspective that we've, we've come from. And then this product Purple is, came out of a an experiment that me and my co-founder Rebecca did uh, for the 2016 election, and then sort of grown into a product from there. Yeah, can, can you um, can you touch on that? Like, how did what was this experiment? Actually, you know what? Even before all that, let's 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 take a couple of steps back, and we'll jump into jump into that. Like, um, we were talking yeah. prior to the call that you you're originally from Sweden, and you you and I we share we share. To some extent, some Trojan history. My father being a Trojan, <laughs> and you having gone to gone to USC. Um, can you kind of uh, kind of touch on like when you came into the states and you went to school uh, at USC? Did you always know that you were going to eventually start building things and become an entrepreneur and, and create products, or like what was that sort of maturation evolution like? Uh, yeah, so I think on some level I did. I mean, I built a bunch of things when I was a kid. Um, from like I built this esports website when I was 14 uh, that ended up getting a bunch of traffic and then kind of didn't know what to do with it. But it was just sort of a sense of building something about something that I was interested in and trying to get it out to people. That I always got a kick out of that. Um, I had probably from from my my dad uh, this obsession with Apple from a very young age. Um, and so kind of growing up, um, you know, watching the, the Steve Jobs keynotes and kind of following along with the journey of what he did coming back to Apple and sort of rejuvenating the whole product line was always sort of this magical thing to me. And I think it was hugely influential in me growing up and kind of what I look for when I look for quality and products, sort of this holistic uh, approach to everything you know, from the inside of the computer to the outside building things that have this sort of magical quality to it of, of, of someone who really cares about it. Um, and I think, you know, I, in high school too, I, I didn't go to um, school for computer science. So I, I learned a program when I was, uh, was fairly young and I uh, had this sort of naive thought process that, you know, I kind of know how to build web apps and I don't know if I need to go to school for that, but I don't know how to build a business. So let me go to school for that instead. And so I, I went to, uh, USC, like you said, and I think to Marshall School of Business, uh, with a focus on entrepreneurship there. Because I, I always had this in the back of my head that I wanted to create a business. I think partially because it's a great way to be really uh, effective with your effort. You know, you're able to reach a lot of people and do a lot with wh whatever you're doing and not have a lot of red tape. Um, and also, I think 
I always thought it kind of it fit with who I was, uh, being sort of self-driven and being autonomous to some degree. Um, it's been relatively important to me. And so I didn't really, it wasn't like I, I knew what I wanted to do. And it wasn't necessarily that I was for sure thinking that, hey, I'm going to go out and start a bunch of businesses. But um, this is definitely in the back of my mind. Yeah. But my first job out of college was actually doing sales. Got doing sales. Nice. Where were you doing sales? So I was doing sales for this uh, startup in Santa Monica called Texia, um, selling uh, crowdsourced patent research tools to attorneys. <laughs> so, so basically, like fun. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of my uh, my mentors, my cousin, he's the founder of a company called Bison in Boston, and uh, Rasmus. He, he just I was talking to him as I was graduating high school, and he was saying, "Look, you know, one of the things about building products that not a lot of people." Uh, get or not a lot of people do is sort of really learning how to sell something and doing that from the ground up. Um, and, you know, I think it was an interesting idea. And uh, this opportunity kind of presented itself as I graduated. And, you know, I think it was tremendously helpful. I'm doing 70 phone calls a day, calling attorneys, which are probably not the most receptive audience to cold calling. Right. So you really have to figure out how to, like, get someone's attention and help <clears throat> to them. You know, you can't bullshit them. They're way better than you are at bullshitting. Um, so that was, I mean, I think that was a great experience and I'd recommend anyone who's interested in trying to build products to get very comfortable with doing sales because it's, it's a, this, I think those processes, like good companies for good products are really, really deeply linked. Yeah. So how, how do you, you know, and this is something I still tussle with now and I, and I, I guess I think I tussle with it because I'm not sure if I'm doing it the right way, but how do you approach potential customers to figure out what their needs are. Like how do you set this how do you set the stage for them to be authentic and open about what it is their pain point is um, or to just provide you with enough data points so that you can then figure out what the pain point is and the solve for it. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you know for us for the product to begin with, we sort of built the product for ourselves. Um so that's always a good thing. If you're a user of your own product, that's a great way to sort of understand what the product needs to improve right. to begin with at least. Um, but I think that might not, you know, rarely sort of the long-term view of a, of a product, especially our cars now, which is more of a platform. Um, I think, you know, talking to users is always tremendously important, and I think you'll hear that in multiple directions. But I think what's uh, what's tricky is what, what does that really mean, right? Um, a lot of the time, it, it comes down to taking the time, being interested in, in what they're doing, and really asking sometimes seemingly irrelevant questions to kind of follow them down their thought pattern and discover ways that they're doing things now. Because I think a lot of the time, people will show you what their what their needs are, what their real problems are by their behavior. And so, uh, my aim in a lot of conversations with users is to understand what their current behavior look like looks like. And then once you kind of get an idea of what their current behavior looks like, you'll find that you know, there are a lot of these little hacky ways that they get around doing things, especially if you know, you're talking about your own product. Always surprising to find the ways people are using it that you didn't think of before you built it. Uh, and those are tremendously helpful ways to figure out how to improve, to just like empower those use cases and make them more effective. Um, but I think a lot of the time, it's, 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 it's a time-consuming process because you really have to 
get someone to the point where they're just free from talking about their day, their habits, the way they're doing things, what obstacles come up. And that's when you kind of really start getting the gems. And so um, listening and, and trying not to read people, um, I think too is really important. A lot of the time in product conversations, I notice people will lead, you know, with like questions that are very specific to what they're actually working on. But by doing that, you risk sort of losing the insights that you weren't necessarily looking for, but that might be way more impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Admittedly, I, I could do a much better job at that. I think, <clears throat> I think there's, it does take a, I think it takes a particular type of skill and sort of empathy for the people you're speaking to. And then also uh, patience in terms of like couching a question that gives them the room to fill in the holes for you um, and feel comfortable in being honest and sort of forthright with exactly how they're using it, how they're feeling about the use and all that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then also like I think another thing that is, is really um, easy to jump to is hear something and then immediately jump into, oh, here's how we could solve that. Right. Um, but again, I think that immediately narrows down the scope of your conversation. So I think a lot of the time my goal will be to keep the scope of the conversation fairly wide so that we're in a really exploratory phase where we're really, you know, able to talk about different types of concepts as they're relating to their needs, the product, the product, their life, their habits, um, before you start jumping down into specific potential solves or specific features, because once you do that, you're you're going to really really narrow the scope of the conversation, which in some ways like is tremendously helpful. You know, sometimes you just need to sit and watch someone use one feature, figure out hey this feature is broken or this can be better in this way. But I think um, the conversations that I love the most are the ones that are broader, because um, they generally get these interesting insights that are a lot of the times kind of out of left field. Yeah. So to that point, like. I guess to to the point behind it, like how do you find, how do you get in touch with your users, your customers, um, and are these conversations live? Are they are in your ex, in your experience with Purple and with Infinity One and anything else? Is are these conversations uh, conversations you're having uh, like through video, through chat, like this, or through text, or through um, like what's what's the medium? And then also, how do you get a hold of them? How do you sort of prompt them to then um, have a conversation with you? So um, for 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 Infinity One, which is a is a mobile development shop that was running with my uh, friend from college, um, still doing, they're doing great work. Uh, you know, a lot of our customers were coming to us, and we were having like the whole relationship was very, uh, say, intimate in many ways. You know, I was sitting down with someone who had something they wanted to build, a vision for something that they wanted just has exists in the world. Um, and we worked with a lot of early stage, like really, really early stage people, really. A lot of them wasn't even companies. It was people who like, hey, I, I, I think this needs to exist in the world, this app or whatever, and here's why. And we kind of have to do product therapy in some sense of being like, okay, why? What is the core need? How can we like simplify this? Um, and so those conversations were usually the bulk of, of the initial work, and they would be long, like hours long be whiteboarding and kind of just getting down to the nitty gritty. And a lot of the time what would come out of that would be fairly different from the idea that they'd sort of come in with. Um, and I think that's a lot of the time necessary if you're you know, doing agency work, uh, if you're building something for people, um, because it's, it's, 
there's a synthesis and that happens when you have other people sort of touch and explore your idea. Um, and ideas that come up sort of in isolation of someone's own mind a lot of the time are are not fully formed yet, right? So you have to kind of like help back out and fully like form the scope of the idea and figure out what it is they're really trying to do. Um, with Purple, your whole platform is built on communication. So all of our end members, they receive text messages from the people on the platform. So that's a direct line of communication that we can use with them to be able to, to talk to them or to send surveys, um, which is really helpful and kind of like a mass scale to get bigger like aggregate quantitative data um, and then with uh, the users of the platform uh, yeah a lot of the time we'll try to sit down in person think it's always better if you can do that and really schedule time and be open about it be like hey we're, we're working on this and I think if you're if you're honest and you explain sort of the reason why you're coming to them and what you're doing most people are more than happy to take the time like I think people in general uh, especially today love being uh, involved in the building of the product. And so if you just kind of explain, hey, you know, we're building out the next version or we're, we're working on feature X or we're trying to improve this and we're trying to get better feedback from our users, would you be open to talking to us about this? Uh, I've, I've rarely had a problem with that approach. I've always found that people are very willing to do that. And then you sit down and you get to start the conversation from that viewpoint. But with the... <laughs> kind of goal being for them to talk way more than you do, right? So you, tr you come in with some sort of like spoken agenda, but a lot of the time it ends up being a conversation that they kind of pick up from the bat too, which is really interesting. If you just give people room to talk, they'll explain like, oh, you know, we've been doing this. This was so great. You know, actually one thing though, and then that's kind of how the whole span of the conversation keeps going. You just sort of have to keep following down that path um, and let them sort of lead you. Yeah, I like that. I like that. What is um what's what's a way that you you've opened those open those conversations up? Like do you have like your your go-to it's called them pickup lines? Not really. Um That's a good question. I haven't really thought of, about a framework from that sense. I think um most of the time it happens fairly naturally, you know, you kind of sit down and you say like so you know, how 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 are things going? It is a really good question, right? In a, in a funny way, because it's very open, but people immediately like people can fit almost whatever they're thinking of into that answer, right? Um, I'll try to tie conversations a lot of the time to their usage of the product. So, like a recent thing they've done, or like their usage if it's gone up or down in the past month. Kind of talk about, bring up like, okay, so this is really exciting, or we, we you know, we talked about this before, we looked at this, like how is this uh, working out for you or, you know, whatever. But I think coming at it from that viewpoint of kind of giving that space right at the beginning, kind of talk about what's on their mind um, and what's important to them. And I think a lot of the time people discount or kind of just maybe forget because you're so focused on building your own business to sort of ask the question of like, Hey, what's, what's the key, thing for this person who I'm who my business is serving like what what is their need right now what is the number one thing on their agenda what meeting this week is most important for them or what milestone is most important for them this quarter and you can get a lot of insight from just asking questions like that and I think they're very easy to ask when people forget a lot of the time and it makes sense 
Yeah, that's that's definitely fair. I, I know when I'm when I'm engaged in in sales, um, whether it be for like sponsorships or for like, <clears throat> or even even when I talk to investors, a lot of times it's trying to figure out what their what their sort of emotional drive is. Like, what would yeah. make them feel the best? Um, right. From an outcome standpoint, and then what's that feeling? What is like? Can you describe that feeling for me? Um, and oftentimes you can determine mm. from that like whether or not what you're doing is going to provide that feeling. Um, especially when we're talking about like sponsorships or we're talking about like a, a, a collecting digital av- agency clients and all that. Like there's, there's, there are acute objectives that they may have that may not be in line with what you're able to output. Right. Yep. Exactly. Interesting. So w- let's kind of like pivoting over to like purple. Um, and, and when you said that this was something that came out as an experiment, um, yeah. Uh, during the, the last election, right? The last presidential election. Yep. Got it. So, I imagine like in that, when, when I hear experiment and I hear election, I'm thinking you have a pool of people that you can then talk to and you're interacting with on a regular basis, on a, on a pretty focused, acute basis. So can you kind of like uh, paint the picture for us? Like what was this experiment? Um, who was involved? And then how did Purple come out of that? Yeah, so, um, you know, at the time I was, I was working, um, I don't know, I wasn't, um, so, so is my co-founder and Rebecca. Rebecca is, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife's childhood best friend. Um, she was going to a journalism school here in New York and, uh, building this blog called purple politics. And as part of what she was doing, she was doing these sort of interactive explainers on issues, um, that were affecting the election. The first one that we worked on together was, uh, this one on the affordable healthcare act. So. She just emailed me. I was like, "Hey, I'm building this website. I'm having trouble with it. Would you want to help me out?" And I was just doing it for fun. But then the kind of that grew from us sort of starting with that, to kind of doing these little experiments around how to make content and information around political discourse uh, more interesting or accessible to our peers. It's a problem that we both felt at the time. You know, the 2016 election turned out to be tremendously important. Uh, we felt like from point where we started experimenting around this, that it would be very important. Uh, this was at some point, you know, 2015, maybe like April 2015, we started doing this. Um, and we did all kinds of things. We did these like interactive uh, fact finder things where you could like put an issue in and it would tell you, uh, say that you would say like, oh, you know, I want to learn about gun control and I am uh, in favor of more gun control. And they would show you arguments for uh, the opposing side, like why people think there should be less gun control and what their arguments are, what the facts are. Kind of open people's minds and help them explore the other side of the conversation, uh, which is something that I think intuitively we wanted people to do that. I don't know if it's it's not easy to get people to do that because we're not core psychology level, we might not want to do that. and uh, so at the same time, you know, we were, Rebecca was doing this blog and sending out a newsletter about the election. And we started noticing that you know, people weren't really reading the newsletter as much as we wanted them to, but they were still asking us questions, texting us about, hey, what's up with this primary debate today? Um, can Donald Trump actually win the election? And so we kind of had this light bulb moment of like, hey, well, it turns out people are just texting us. Why don't we just text them? And uh, that's kind of how the product started. So. We got a Google Voice number and we started texting 
50 people from our newsletter um, and uh, covering, I think it was one of the primary debates, uh, just giving them live updates on what's happening, fact checks, uh, giving them a breakdown after the fact. And it really quickly grew uh, with word of mouth from like 50 to 100 to 500 to 1,000 um, to where sort of in the heat of the election, we had over 3,000 people that we were texting with them. You know, at the point, you can't, we had to sort of start building a product out for it. So we built our own sort of CMS on the back end to be able to send out these campaigns, do these uh, sort of interactive stories via text messaging. Um, and we realized there was, a, there was a really, a, uh, something very, very interesting there. The forms of, communi form of communication itself in text messaging and sort of how we were communicating that was reaching people who weren't necessarily as engaged. Um, they'd like to be. Um, and so that's how the company started. And then we got into Techstars in New York. So I moved out from LA to here to New York and uh, built out the product. You know, we had a couple of, it's interesting. I mean, it's been a, been a journey. We've had a couple of different sort of iterations where we go with the product and around the time 2016, uh, Facebook Messenger was really coming up as a platform for you know, a lot bots or whatever you have it. Uh, and uh, we thought, you know, hey, maybe we can do what we're doing over text messaging on Facebook. And so we tried that. It turns out that didn't work um, for a lot of interesting reasons. And we could dive into those. I think those are kind of useful product lessons um, to sort of uh, towards the end of last year, we sort of la we launched the platform that allows people to do what we did during the election over text messaging. So it's only text messaging. And then we also give people the opportunity to sort of charge for it. So a lot of our people on our platform will charge say five bucks a month to get text messages from them. Uh, and we sort of facilitate that interaction from a core. Interesting. I like <clears throat> what sort of prompted that. Well, I guess a couple of things. So one, uh, you were in LA while building, while kind of maturing the, maturing this idea. Uh, yeah. And so was Rebecca or were you guys remote? Uh, we were remote. Rebecca was in New York. Oh, cool, 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 cool. So I guess one, were you guys text messaging back and forth, <laughs> or like, like <laughs> what, what's the communication like during that during those early days between two, uh, two folks like yourselves? And, and did you guys consider yourselves co-founders at that time, or was it more like this is just a fun thing? Let's try to get this going. I mean, at first it was kind of a fun thing, and then it got more serious, and you know, we uh, had a lot of good people around us that sort of advised us on how to do it. Um, Rebecca already had kind of a business entity for the blog that she was running. Yeah. So we kind of folded into that. I think an important thing earlier when you're starting a business is to think of kind of how you want to approach splitting responsibilities and splitting uh, ownership, et cetera. And so I think kind of when it started taking off, we divided all that up and, you know, went in 50-50 and uh, uh, had all the structures set up relatively early. I mean, getting into tech stars kind of helped with that too because it sort of forces you to get all the corporate stuff in order. Right. Um, they'll be very diligent about that. I think, and I think it's a great idea to do that as early as possible. Uh, and today it's easier than ever with things like Stripe Atlas and whatnot. Exactly. Uh, with firm and communication, as far as communication goes, you know, we talk a lot over all kinds of communication. Slack was really important for us early on. And I mean, I guess at that point, Slack was kind of a still a young product. Um, we were, it's really been foundational to how we've communicated from the beginning. Um, a lot of calls, video calls, a lot of flying back and forth. Rebecca would come out to LA. I would fly out to New York to sort of do in-person stuff for at least a week at a time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for, for me too, 
you know, building the product itself, sitting down coding. Um, I really value heads down time where I can just sit and really like think about a problem and digest a problem. And so I te we tend to have meetings if we do a meeting sort of at the beginning of the day and then kind of leave the rest of the day open to getting you know, intense work done. And then um, company evolved. We started doing these things. We basically try to schedule all of our meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays and have the other days open for, for deep work. Just been really, I think, helpful, um, at least for sort of how I approach things. Yeah, I think what doing that is tremendously helpful. So when you, um, I can definitely relate to that. By the way, the the sort of heads down deep work piece. There's actually an author, I forget his name, has a book called Deep Work, and before yeah. that, it was called Be So Good You Can't Ignore, You Can't Be Ignored, something like that. Like Cal Newport. There you go, Cal Newport. Yep. George George Tonian, right? George Tonian, George Tonian. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things you touched on before was that uh, you guys made the the move into Facebook Messenger, uh, but yeah. but sort of uh, sort of killed that eventually. What was the? Can you kind of unpackage that a little bit? Like what happened, and why did you choose to close that down? Yeah, I think we didn't fundamentally understand the value of the product. And I'm still not sure we, we truly do. I think it's really hard to understand the real value of what you're offering. I mean, we have guesses and hypotheses, and we work on those over time. But I think that's one of the things that's really difficult to do. And that, um, is at a core of product building and getting better as a person building things. Um, we at the time, we kind of, you know, we thought the, the the form of communication itself was sort of the most important thing, this sort of short form, direct communication back and forth. And so if you look at it from perspective, Facebook Messenger and text messaging looks relatively similar. And the Messenger actually has some um, distinct advantages over text messaging. You know, it has the ability to add buttons. It has the ability to send multi richer multimedia messages. Text messaging comes with all these sort of arcane problems because the infrastructure that text messaging is built on um, really started in the 70s and hasn't changed all that much. And so it's kind of built on layers and layers of really old technology at this point that comes with a bunch of weird corner cases and, and problems that you have to sort of build for and solve for that are kind of frustrating but interesting. But from that perspective, you look at Facebook Messenger, you say, hey, well, this is modern. It has a really clean API. Um, it's the ability to send really rich multimedia, and you know it's going to get to everyone. You can add interactive buttons to make uh, engagement quicker and, and more seamless. You know, We have these things with keywords. People can text back a word, and they can get automated responses back. And there's this whole like, choose your own adventure system in our back end that will allow people to kind of go down those rabbit holes. And that was one of the things we were doing during the election. People really liked you know, building these deep explainers of political issues things like bite-sized, chunk-sized pieces of information. And so looking at all those factors, we're like, hey, you know, looks like Facebook Messenger is a no-brainer. So we kind of rewrite part of our code to facilitate Facebook Messenger as well, um, migrate over our users, and we were able to get most of them over. Uh, it's just that it, the product didn't feel the same, which is really interesting. That's a problem where you, you like you kind of know it, you know, you're using it and you're like, oh, well, this, this feels different, but you don't know why and you don't really know what it is and if it's important or if it's uh, bad or good at first. Um, and we did a lot of thinking and talking to our users and some surveys and what it ended up coming down to, uh, I think 
maybe the biggest delta uh, was the people that you communicate with via text messaging are people that you really care about. Yeah. So it's your, your parents, your siblings, your best friends, right? And that's where Purple lived at first, next to those people. It was like the media and the information that you cared about the absolute most. It was given the most primacy in your phone. It was like a, a choice of, of, of extreme trust. It's like, hey, I want these people here. And uh, Facebook Messenger just is on a completely different end of that spectrum in a way. You know, it's like, who are you talking to on Facebook Messenger? Well, it ended up, well, what a user ended up telling us was, you know, it's like kind of distant relatives or friends from college who they didn't give their phone number to, uh, or people who they don't talk to that much for various reasons, or also when this was happening, other bots. And so we were never really a bot, which is another part of the problem. And we ended up getting grouped into this idea of what a bot was. And so people's expectations of the, of the use of the platform, people's mindset going into it changed. And so the part of the magic was diminished. Um, and you know, we reflected on that. We did a lot of deep thinking, came back to it. And that's when we decided to, to scrap the messenger part, which is difficult. Difficult as an early company to do that, it's a young company. Um, and then really build out the platform for text messaging. Because the other thing that kept happening during the life of the company was people saying, hey, can we do what you guys are doing? Can we use your technology to, to reach our audience this way? which is always a really interesting thing for us. Um, and so we launched that in November of last year. Um, and that's been really interesting and clearly a much better solve than the Facebook Messenger approach. But, yeah. you know, going through that whole journey, like, I'm not sure I can go back, make a different decision. I think we were rig rigorous and we thought it through well. I think it's one of those things, too, where you kind of see it when you've done it right and in hindsight like i can reflect on what happened and I, I i think i know um why it wasn't as good as it could have been um not to say like we had a lot of people using it and it was effective in its communication but it just wasn't like it wasn't as good it wasn't like a magical product anymore yeah yeah it's funny we, I, I i i can completely relate to that distinction one just because I, you know, I've, I've looked at the messenger space, and there there are a number of companies who leverage text message as a way to reach customers more specifically. And I don't know if they're clients of yours or if uh, if you guys are like in cahoots in some way. But like there's like Dirty Lemon and there's Shine and there's uh, there's a, a couple of like text enabled businesses. But one of the things that I, that this reminds me of is like I use Calendly or Schedule Once to to basically set up meetings and. I do it because it's efficient. Like it's it's just it's a clean solution. There's no less less back and forth. When I send that to family or friends, they do it, but it feels different, and mm. they call it out. Despite the fact that I'm you know being I'm trying to be efficient, and I'm sort of I disclaimered it. Like I know I'm going to drop the ball. This isn't going to help me from dropping the ball. It still yeah. feels impersonal because. Yeah. The more personal touch would be like, let's just talk back and forth via email or let's hop on the phone, pull up our calendars respectfully and, and pick a time. I know it's slower. I know it takes more time, but this is the yeah. relationship. Path. This is the bucket you're in. You're in the friendship yep. bucket. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and text message, just you, you, you hit it on the head. It, it's that like there are folks on my phone that I talk to about the most random things. I'll shoot them a message about a girl I saw on the street or a you know, that I'm, I'm craving a hot dog or whatever <laughs> that right, right. Yeah, you, yeah, you wouldn't sure. have on Facebook. 
No, and I think, you know, the Calendly thing, it's a really interesting example. And I think it's really interesting to unpack that, right? Why is that? Uh, part of it is, I think, there's some sort of currency there of uh, effort. Like your friends are expecting you to maybe do it the way that's a little bit more high touch and more effort, even though it's more inefficient. But like, there's there's value to you offering them that currency because you couldn't possibly do that to everyone else. So, it shows like a level of commitment to them beyond what you would offer to most people. That's right. So it's like special treatment, and and then that 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 creates value. And I, I mean, it has clearly some evolutionary benefits or value those sorts of things. Um, but I mean, I 100% feel you. I love Calendly. I wish I could kind of use stuff like that more in my personal life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I caught a wedding band uh, before the call. Is that, are you married? You, you did say you're married. Your girlfriend, now wife. Um, yep. So if you sought her a Calendly link to set up like date night or anything like that, would she be cool with that or <laughs> <laughs> would that be a problem? I mean, I think that'd be weird because we'd just, it'd be easier for us to talk about it and I know her schedule pretty well. But I do some, we do some calendar invites. Okay. So, yeah. That's about where it's like we're gonna go out somewhere. We're like we'll put it on our calendars. Yeah. Uh, and I think I it just makes my life easier. I I have a hard time um, being completely organized with everything. Like that's never been one of my strong sides. Of, like remembering all the things that are on my calendar or keeping my desk neat and tidy. You know. It's uh. So I think. For me, using using technology when I can to like take those off my my plate is a no brainer. Yeah. Uh, but actually, one of my my good friends, uh, Nathan, who who worked for us earlier on, um, he was one of the first people as a friend who started sending me calendar invites. And at first, I was like, you know, this it's like so it feels so cold in a way. Like you just get a calendar invite to do something, and for some reason, it's like an odd thing to get. But then you think about it and we started doing it back and forth. It's great. Like I put all my, I put all kinds of stuff on the calendar now. <laughs> so does your calendar now look like your desk? Is it, is it, is it, is there some structure to it or no structure like your desk? No, there's structure to it. And there's structure to my desk too. It's just like, it's structured chaos. <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> I respect it. Um, well, what, what, what are the things I, I want to do before I jump over to quick fire is uh, you guys, you, you mentioned, and actually, before we do that, do you have time? I know it's twelve fifty-five. I want to see if you have an extra like five or so minutes to to, to jump over. Is that cool? Yeah, no, I have time. Okay, Don't cool. Worry, um, so you, you guys, you mentioned that you 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 went from, I guess you could say, would you say it's like a a, a B to C model to now a B to B model? Kind of, yeah. Got it. And and I guess with that in mind, like, what is what has changed from a customer acquisition standpoint? I I would imagine like on face value you have potentially a smaller pool of customers to to have to try to right. develop a relationship with, but potentially also easier to get a hold of. Yeah, definitely, and much more. You know, the the value of a customer goes up a lot if you think about it just uh, pragmatically. The value of a customer is increasing from a B two B for a B two B business than a B two C, right? Right. In general, that'll be true. And so you can spend a lot more effort and time to acquire them. Um, now, I think early on, most companies, you spend a lot of effort and time anyway. Like the way you acquire your users early on, even if you're a B2C company, it's not going to be the scalable way you're doing it when you're big. So it doesn't create that big of a delta in that sense. Like word of mouth was our biggest growth factor by far early on in the, in the 
uh, early days of Purple during the election. And it's kind of the same today. Like, it'll be someone using the product, and then they'll tell their friend. Um, like, a lot of users will be creators, YouTubers, um, and they'll be like, hey, my other friend is also a YouTuber wants to do this. Uh, or if it's a media outlet, the journalist be like, hey, my other friend's also a journalist, or this other media outlet, we're talking about it. Or they'll see the work of someone else, and they want to do it. Um, so I think if you can kind of get those acquisition channels working, uh, they're definitely the best ones. It's really tricky. It takes such a long time. Yeah. I think that's the biggest challenge for any business is like it takes a really long time to get acquisition going. And our, I think our, one of our biggest challenges is sort of we're doing two new things in a sense. Like we have a different form of communication, it's text messaging versus what people are used to. So there's education in that and where the value is how to do it, right? You get someone up on the platform, like now they have to figure out what to say, like how to get their people onto the platform to move text up. And then two, it's that most of our users are charging for it. So if you do a newsletter today, like there are two, two, two big changes. One is you're charging for it now, and two is you're doing text messaging instead of a newsletter. So those are a big steps of, of uh, education that are challenging, but it's really fun. And once it clicks, um, I think it's clear that it's valuable, but um, it's really hard to get those things right for sure. Yeah, well, what's, what's an example of when it does click? Like traversing those two learning curves. I think uh, so. One of one of our users, uh, Katie Morton, is a YouTuber and uh, she's a licensed therapist, and she has a YouTube channel where she talks about uh, all kinds of mental health issues, um, topics about you know, how to approach your life, how to uh, um, be a human being today, and, and feel happy about it. Um, and she uses Purple to send out journaling prompts. Really interesting. So I think for us, the conversation with her early on was kind of like, okay, this is cool. And I think we got in touch her through her agent. Um, and they kind of saw immediately that there's some value there and just kind of the, the sort of intimacy of the communication itself. And then once she sent out a link for her viewers to subscribe, pretty immediately, like you realize there's a fit. And there are a couple of ways, you know, like you get a bunch of feedback back People are like, hey, this is awesome, because people can text you back. So there's a two-way street of communication. We're just a core part of our thesis is sort of breaking down the barriers between creator and audience um, and making that more doable at scale, too, which is a really fun problem. So that that's magical in and of itself. Um, and then the second part is obviously, like, if you've been relying on sort of the old web model of trying to get your small piece of the advertising pie and all of a sudden you're getting money deposited directly into your account at the end of every month uh, for each user, sort of recurring. And there's like a symbiotic relationship there. I think that's like, like that demonstrates its own value, right? To anyone um, and uh, allows people to sort of change their mindset and how they create content, which is really interesting. Right. Right. To what, to what extent is the, is the, are the, are the conversations on purple two way? Because uh, I know you, it's it's and correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like there's an initial sort of prompt or blast that that hits all the members that may be assigned to an account, uh, but then those mem those individuals can then respond. Am I right? And then, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and forth with them, or is there are there like tools on the back end that help you manage that scaled conversation? Yeah. So you can respond, and depending on the the purpler. <laughs> they uh, they'll handle it differently. And uh, the important thing there is setting the expectation. 
Tom will answer everyone. Uh, that point. And you can imagine, like, you you can charge a lot of money if you're doing something that's really much. You can say, hey, this is going to be $150 a month, but it'll be real-time news on X industry, and I'll be here to answer questions. That can be really valuable in most circumstances. Or it could be a small amount of money per month, and it's like, hey, you know, it takes me back if you have any questions or suggestions or things you want to learn about, but I might not be able to get to you all the time. Um, but for us early on, it was, you know, it's 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 sort of a magical advantage to have in that you have this sort of real-time line with your communication in the product itself. Right. So if something wasn't working, people would let us know right away. Or if something was amazing, they would let us know right away. People would ask us questions like, hey, can I, can I pay you guys <laughs> to make sure that this sticks around? That was one of the ways that we thought about just building in payment right into the platform. We kept getting that as feedback. Um, well, that's interesting. Can I pay you guys to make sure this sticks around? Can I pay Purple to ensure yeah. that Purple and the SMS solution you provided me is around. Right. Yeah. Because that, that, that's, a, that's a very, in the back of my, you know, in the last two years alone, I've seen a number of sort of SMS organizations come and go or evolve mm. and shift into different directions. Um, and I've seen models change. I've seen like pricing tiers kick up. Um, yeah. So it's, it, it is, as like a service, as a client of services, I am always, I am always concerned or, there's always like a, a little bit of a caveat, like, is this group going to be around if I invest all my time in this and build up yeah. my audience? And then what's like the, what's the porting cost or the porting, yeah, what are the porting costs to move my base off of purple um, right. or to whatever solution? So how do you guys think about that? How do you, it's, I, I, would, I would imagine like even it's like a classic startup problem, startup SaaS problem. Like how do you, how do you address that concern? Well, I think I, I've, I've, uh, always been the philosophy that at the end of the day you put your users first so you think about like what is best from their perspective and a lot of the time um, you'll that will pay back in dividends and so something like portability like help them out you know yeah um, I, don't, I don't see it like I wouldn't never want to be in a situation where I'm like no I'm gonna keep I'm gonna make this not portable for you and you're gonna be stuck that's that doesn't sound like a good experience for anyone. It just not doesn't. It's not an honest way to build a relationship, and I don't think it's a sustainable way to build a business. Um, as a startup in general, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a good question. There's always um, give or take with that, but I think it's a symbiotic relationship. The people who are using the platform also are excited about the fact that you're using something new, right? Something that's innovative, right? Uh, something that's different, and so they take. They always see you're taking a risk on that too, um, and they get value out of that too. And then, like, they get to talk to the people who are building the products, and um, we go back and forth with them. But at the end of the day, like, we're, we're trying to serve them, we're trying to make this sustainable, and um, keep them sort of at the top of our minds. But it's a really good question. It's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. You did touch on an interesting piece of it that the the members, the individuals who are using you at this stage, are 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 already sort of educated and mindful of what the risks are and are willing to rock with it. And as a result, they're your early adopters or even then, or even beyond that, which is a, right. which is, is a good kind of detail to keep in mind that. Um, I think you'll find like as an early SaaS business, too, you'll, you'll get people who will be like, Hey, you know what? Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait till you're bigger or I'm going to look for something that's more mature. Yeah, for sure. It's fine. Like, I think that that's totally cool. Yeah. 
And you just kind of hit them back up when you're mature. <laughs> you're like, hey, you know, we've been around for like four or five years now. We have X right. money. We, we make X in revenue. We have right. hundreds of thousands of clients. I'm pretty sure we're big enough now. <laughs> right, uh, right. Awesome, man. Well, I, I want to jump over to our quick fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Let's do it. All right. So first question, uh, Biggie or Tupac? Tupac. Why? Um, so Tupac to me is uh, okay. I, I, there are multiple layers to this answer. I don't want to take too much time. No, on go it, for but, it. Uh, go for it. Take take it all the time you need. I, <laughs> I like the Tupac answers. <laughs> yeah, I mean Tupac is, is a poet. The the depth of the lyrics and the music that Tupac created is immense. Um, I've spent a lot of time with it growing up, and it's been very important to me. Um, and Biggie is great, but uh, in a very different way. It feels more like um, party music to me. It's more of the sort of atmosphere in which I've experienced Biggie and had the most fun with Biggie. Right. Um, and so th- it's very hard for me to compare the two, but uh, like in a direct comparison, one to one. But like, yeah, I think Tupac and you know, All Eyes on Me as an album, tremendously. Um, uh, there just has so much depth to it. You can listen to it over and over again. There's layers and layers. Um, yeah. I mean, they both in the is lost, obviously, but I got to go with Tupac. Yeah. It's, it's a good answer. <laughs> it's a good, <laughs> good answer. Um, all right. So next question. What What is a uh, a book or a number of books that, that have been the most impactful to you personally or and or professionally? Oh, uh, it's a lot. Uh, I'm a huge Isaac Asimov fan. Oh, Foundation cool. series. Yeah. Um, my favorite books. And like books uh, books that I come back to again and again and again. Uh, Verger, Werner Vinge, um, another sci-fi author, has a couple of really, really good books. Um, one of them, Marooned in Real Time. Uh, also one of my favorite books. Um, it's about it's the second book in a two-part series, but it's a light spoiler. Um, it's about a group of people who basically they invent this thing through it's like you can bubble an area, physical geographical area, and freeze them in time. And so uh, basically sort of towards the end of the days of society, this group of people decides they're going to keep bubbling themselves and experience sort of the end of the earth um, in different epochs by like skipping large periods of time in this bubble. And someone sort of gets left out of this bubble, so they're marooned. And sort of a detective novel, but in this sci-fi concept, and it explores really interesting philosophical concept, but also technology um, and science, and it's just really fascinating. That's dope. Um, I'm definitely gonna take that book out. <laughs> <laughs> From a business perspective, um, I mean, I, I'm a big, uh, I like inventors, so I mean, I'm a big Richard Feynman. Fan, surely you're joking. Mr. Feynman's a great book. Um, Seeking Wisdom, which is a book by uh, the Swedish Swedish author Peter uh, Bevelin. Yeah, um, is a really good, I think, book on how to think. It explores Charlie Munger and uh, mental models uh, and how to approach thought processes and then thinking in your life. I think it's if there's one book that I would tell myself to read earlier, it's that probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for startups, I mean, I think uh, Founders at Work is a great book. Um, 
the hard thing about hard things, and uh, the Peter Thiel lectures. So the, there's a series of lectures that uh, Zero to One was based on. Um, that the student who ended up co-writing Zero to One with Peter Thiel, I forget his name, he released those lectures, those notes online, um, and I think they're they're great. I prefer them to the book if you can find them. Um, they're really interesting food for thought about why to build, what to build, how to build. And then lastly, there's a book by uh, Richard Hamming, which is a mathematician who was um, teacher at the the uh, Naval Academy, I think, uh, one of the one of the naval uh, learning institutions. Wrote a book called The Art of Doing Science and Engineering. Um, and one of the first chapter, the first chapter, I think, he poses the uh, a set of questions to think about of the world, of like what is possible, um, what is likely to happen, and what is desirable to happen. Um, and then to reflect on those and to think about what is possible but and desirable but unlikely to happen. And then try to work on things that fit that bit, sort of have the most impact in your life. And I think that's a really interesting framework for how to go about life. The book in general, I think, is tremendously uh, valuable. These are gems. Seeking wisdom. Yeah. Seeking okay. wisdom. I, I have my fourth copy. That's like, that's like my Bible. <laughs> it's such a great book. Yeah, man. Dense. I love it. Um, all right. So next question. Great recommendations, by the way. All those. Um, next, next question, uh, sneakers or dress shoes? Um, you know, uh, I guess I'm kind of indifferent. I said, I don't, I don't, I try to, um, focus my mental efforts on, on things that I, uh, really care about. Yeah. And so I, I own like only a few pairs of shoes. That's fair. Like most of my clothes match. So that way I don't have to think too much about sort of what I'm wearing. Um, but, I mean, I guess I wear sneakers more, for sure. But I really <laughs> like a nice dress shoe, though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't mind the good dress shoe. They're just kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Like, once I find a good dress shoe, I end up buying more than one of them. Same oh, exact okay. one, because it's, one, the comfort piece, but then also the styling aspect. But it can be challenging to find a shoe that matches both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was when I was younger, I think maybe part of this was also growing up in Europe, but I used to spend so much money on clothes and I don't really anymore. But so I choose something I used to spend a lot of money on. Yeah. And I get why you would. It's just like, I also think though, if you get a good pair of shoes, they last a really long time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, all right, so next question is, if you had $200... In two weeks, you have excuse me. You have two hundred dollars in two weeks to turn that two hundred dollars into two thousand hmm. uh, dollars. What do you do? Oh wow, that's a great question. Um, me personally, I'd probably try to find people who want coding problems done, some <laughs> and then use the money either to reach them. Um, or not use the money at all. I don't even know if I need I make the most money in two weeks. Um, if I have to use the money itself as sort of the base, probably, I think like flipping things on eBay is probably the best way to go. Like find some niche. Yeah. Buying and, and selling and finding arbitrage is probably the key, quickest way to make money out of 200 bucks, whether that's like gadgets or clothes. Um, or like 
you know, buying stuff on Alibaba and reselling it. Yeah, that's 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 that seems to be more of a common common thing these days. Or I wouldn't even say common, but people are yeah, more there, aware of it. There might be too much competition there to really like <laughs> make cash. Them. I'm just like I'm thinking through this. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so the high arbitrage opportunities might be gone in that in, like just in that field. Yeah, but um, then again, humanity is huge. There's a lot of different niches you can find. Like maybe a a a, a, a dog many penny contraption that you can purchase on Alibaba and resell here yeah. for a premium because people do love their dogs. Um, right. Like yourself. <laughs> and uh, it is solving a pain point like the, 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 I guess just like the, I don't know what you call that, but the, the nails of a dog. I don't know, do they get many pennies now? Do dogs get many pennies? I guess they do. I mean, I think New York city dogs, maybe not as much because you walk around on, on concrete and asphalt all the time. So they don't need it. Got it. Got it. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's this like, <laughs> there's this uh, pet groomer by me called Paws and Claws. So funny. Yeah. People people spend a fortune on their dogs. For sure, man. Nails. For sure. It's a wild thing. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last question. Uh, you're allowed one meal for the rest of your life for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is the same meal. What is your meal? And, and paint a picture for me. Bring me into the scene. Give me some colors. Give me some sense of what it is. Oh, one meal. That's really tough. Um, I'd probably say shakshuka. What's that? Um, it's a Israeli dish, I believe. Um, Tomato-based. It's like a really rich, flavorful, spicy tomato sauce that you cook in a, in a cast iron pan, usually. And then you... Uh, Basically, you make the sauce, and then once it's all hot, you uh, crack a couple of eggs, put them in there, and sort of fry the eggs with the sauce. Uh, and so the eggs are like kind of medium, like, yeah, medium done, a little runny. And then you kind of eat it in a bowl. It's this very, very flavorful, lots of tomato, lots of lots of egg, lots of spices um, meal that kind of works for dinner and it works for breakfast but i feel like any meal like you know i'd have to caveat this I'd, you'd get so tired of it like everything will be a bad choice <laughs> <laughs> eventually yeah everything would become become something something you loathe but <laughs> yeah it would be nutritionally wise yeah yeah well man david uh this has been this has been fun and, and, and educational for me as well i really appreciate you taking the time out today um I enjoyed myself. For sure, me too, man. Thanks for having me. And I'll go.